Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. Uh, my name is Daryl Mathers, and I'm with my co-host Chris Bovey, and we are pleased to have our special guest Jesse Hirsch on the podcast today. So, before I officially welcome Jesse, I just got a, a couple paragraphs to uh, to introduce you. So, Jesse is an artist, a futurist, which is like the greatest uh, description <laughs> I think you can get. Right? It means you'll never be irrelevant. Right? I, I don't know. Uh, so, he's a futurist researcher and an internet strategist with a passion for educating people on the potential benefits and perils of technology. Uh, Jesse, just this morning, uh, which is February twenty eighth, for the benefit of our audience. Uh, he was the keynote speaker at our annual mental health conference right here in Ontario Shores. He's also very active on social media. You can follow him at Jesse Hirsch on Twitter. And we're pleased to have Jesse with us today. Thank you Thank for you. being here. Thank you. Welcome. So first off, before we get into too much else, can you tell us about your, your, your chat here today with uh, people attending our conference? Well, it's really looking at the future of mental health, both in terms of service delivery, but also patient empowerment. I mean, one of the interests I have when it comes to technology and health is on the one hand, how patients can have greater agency in their care, whether on the preventative sense or in the recovery sense, but also the potential for technology to make healthcare more accessible, in particular mental health care more accessible. But at the same time, I'm not the kind of person who uh, wholeheartedly embraces technology. I do think that it's very important to be critical so that we recognize the responsible use of technology, the ethical use of technology. So I really, on the one hand, try to, to create some excitement around the potential that technology holds for mental health professionals, but also be really critical about how if it doesn't involve participatory design, if it doesn't involve the kinds of ethics and morals that really govern health professionals, then we could lose the opportunity and we could end up in a situation that does more harm than good in part because of the power of data and the way in which data and algorithms and AI can be used to diagnose mental health, to marginalize people with mental health, rather than the opposite, rather than empower and make those kinds of services more accessible and meaningful. In your chat earlier today, you, you referenced um, Google and the UK, a little project they were working on to help uh, with the fight against terrorism. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and how you've kind of tied it back to healthcare and the decisions we make as, as users and potentially what we can do uh, in the future. I think on the one hand, we all recognize how powerful a lot of services like Google or Facebook have become to helping people find stuff and helping people search stuff. But on the other hand, I think there's a real suspicion or concern that they can also be rather manipulative, especially when it comes to manipulating people's moods and people's emotional state. So around the world, there's been a lot of pressure put on social media companies by governments who want to see them do more to combat extremism and fight the way in which terrorists use these platforms to recruit and to raise funds. So there's an interesting situation in the UK in which in Parliament, Google testified about a program that they employ specifically in the UK to try to counter terrorists. And it describes a scenario in which Google is able to identify an extremist based on their search habits. 
So the way in which someone uses Google creates a demographic profile, in this case of an extremist, and then Google, without that individual's knowledge or consent, then replaces the information that they're looking for with different information that's designed to persuade them not to be an extremist and not to see violence as a solution to their problems, which on the surface seems like a perfectly noble task, but I raise it within this context of knowledge and consent and manipulation in that this is in essence Google's business model. I mean, on the one hand, they're making this argument that they can persuade a terrorist to no longer believe in what they believe. But on the other hand, they regularly try to influence what people purchase. So maybe you go to Google because you want to purchase product X, but product Y pays Google money to have advertising that's effective at diverting your purchase to their product instead. So it speaks to a kind of power that these platforms have when it comes to shaping our behavior or impacting our emotions. And it's difficult, the, the whole double-edged sword concept, that if we allow these companies to do it with extremists, then what will stop them from doing it with any other member of society? And this has huge implications around the ethics and efficacy of the delivery of mental health services. Because what if these companies had a magic bullet and said, well, we can automatically help someone who's depressed no longer be depressed because we can change the information we see that's very tempting from a power perspective, but it's not ethical. It may not be effective, and it certainly doesn't speak to the patient empowerment. That's really the true potential of this technology when it comes to allowing people to have greater agency when it comes to their relationship with health professionals. Do you, do you see that as maybe in the States a bit more, um, where it's more private care, where people maybe are getting directed, not to the best place for them, but to, you know, we're, we're using social media to direct. You know, we're headed to pay for service kind of in Canada. Like, are we going to see more of that where people are competing to try and get you to come to their, to get their care as opposed to what's right for the, the consumer? Well, I think there's a, a dangerous tension between a desire to commercialize a lot of these services and a desire to automate a lot of these services. So one of the ex other examples I gave was of therapy bots. These are chat bots that are presented as basically a, a surrogate for a therapist so that if someone can't afford or if a therapist isn't available, it allows people to have that type of dialogic care to talk to someone. And the AI learns about them and customizes their needs while still connecting them to a health professional in emergency situations. So while on the one hand, there's lots of merits towards making that accessible, the danger is that in commercializing it, you don't have the quality of care let alone the attentiveness of dealing with a human being that could either lead to false expectations in terms of someone believing they're getting a kind of care that they're not or creating harmful situations in which people aren't getting the attention they deserve. Mm. But then the other scenario, which I think actually plays out in Canada as equally as the United States, centers around workplace surveillance. And the reality that many employers may, on the one hand, ensure that their employees are healthy and able to do their job, but on the other hand, not allocated the sufficient resources towards delivering proficient mental health services. So this type of autom automation and this type of commercialization could end up identifying where mental health issues exist, but not necessarily dealing with them. For example, employers might be able to get away with discriminating against employees because of mental health issues or even terminating them because you wouldn't know that the employer terminated them because of mental health issues if there isn't transparency. 
if the individual isn't involved in that diagnosing process. So there is a real danger for this technology to be used in a top-down way that doesn't so much look at treatment and recovery, but actually further marginalizes and stigmatizes people because that power of diagnosis is in the hands of someone who doesn't actually care about those individuals, but cares about the bottom line or cares about other issues that are not healthcare issues when it comes to prioritizing this type of care. When I was listening to your speech this morning, one of the common themes was that ethical piece. Like there's so many, there, there's so many possibilities, even what we're doing today. And, and you, you, you obviously talked about the future, but it seemed like wherever there's opportunity, there is some serious ethical questions that are going to be facing society today and for the foreseeable future. I mean, part of the reason I enjoy being a futurist is it really is about shedding light on difficult ethical questions. I mean, we tend to race blindly in the future with the assumption that it'll be just like the past. But increasingly, that's further from the truth. The way in which technology is creating new relationships, new power dynamics, as well as new opportunities and new ways in which we can be empowered suggests that the future has a number of difficult ethical and public policy questions that we really need to have a debate and have a discussion on beforehand rather than reacting after the fact. And in healthcare, especially mental health care, that's even more so. Because on the one hand, the power of diagnosis is becoming increasingly accessible. Whether it's individuals who have access to diagnostic technology via their smartphone, or whether it's the way in which data can be used to diagnose people, it not only creates greater opportunity to provide healthcare services, but it also creates more ethical situation under what are the power dynamics in which those healthcare services are delivered. And I think that's where consent and ethics and privacy and agency have huge, huge issues when it comes to whether this technology works the way we want it to work, or whether it has faults, whether it has biases, whether it has errors, because unfortunately we're in a situation in which the technology is coming before policy and we're creating these tools before we actually think about how we want to use them. And that's dangerous given that every tool shapes the task. If you have a hammer, you're going to go out looking for nails. So if you have a diagnostic device, you're going to go and look up for people to diagnose. And it used to be that the individual got to decide when and where they were diagnosed. Mm, right. And increasingly, that power is being taken away from them. When you see it outside of healthcare, too, you look at social media, for example. They created these tools without any idea how to monetize them, right? And uh, they, they, they stumbled upon this, this great technology. And then they've spent years putting together a, a formula in which they can make money. And I think that's kind of indicative of a lot of technology that maybe is front and center in society is it's great it's out there and now everybody's trying to figure out where they fit into it well and one of the things i mentioned in the talk was this concept of the california ideology mm. that we're really adopting silicon valley's conception of what technology is and how it should be created when we don't have to we can come up with our own value system as to what technology could and should be created. Because to your point about social media, it's the business model of the better built mousetrap. Hmm. We're gonna build a mousetrap that attracts people's attention, and once we've caught everyone's attention, then we'll figure out exactly how to monetize it. 
But that's not really an appropriate strategy for the creation of health technology, especially mental health technology. It's not about capturing people. It's not about coercing people. It really needs to be bottom-up, voluntary and consensual. Therefore, the Silicon Valley model of technology development may not be appropriate for the development of health technology. And there's a need, therefore, to come up with alternate innovation models that ensure that stakeholders, but in particular patients, are front and center to the way in which this technology is designed and used so that they're the primary beneficiaries instead of, say, the shareholders of the company who created that technology. I was going to ask, you know, sort of this broad question, is more better? I mean, today we have the ability to just go online and find anything instantaneously. In the past, we had to seek it out. But I think in the past, we'd go to the right source better. Like now, there's you could go on and say, I've got, I'm not feeling good in these areas, and you can find 800 diagnoses for, for something. It, you know, it's a great tool, but are we, are we less savvy when it comes to things and understanding and, and creating a, a, lot of more, a lot more issues by having access to information? We can't tell which is, which is correct or which is made up. I like to argue that literacy has become the primary determinant of one's status in society. We live in a world of information overload and your ability to decipher what is real and what is fake, what is accurate, what is not, it really determines your ability to get a job, your ability to navigate bureaucracy, your ability to manage your health. And that's where literacy plays an important role, not just for the patient, but also for the health professional. So that the health professional can know which continuing medical research and medical education they should receive, which technologies or tools are actually ethical and, and effective and responsive to the needs of patients. But it also speaks to this broader notion that technology trains us to go for the fast answer rather than the best answer. Mm -hmm. And that's where critical thinking and pattern recognition and the sort of base definition of literacy are so important. Because the other side is we don't have any time. Mm. I mean, technology is taking all of our time so that any spare moment we have, we're in line at the grocery, we feel a need to check our email. And that also, I think, erodes a desire to find the best answer or to find mm. them the most valuable solution to a particular problem. I think there is now a desire to return to patience, to return to taking your time and the notion that the, the process is the purpose, that it's how you do things and not so much the outcome. Mm -hmm. But that's very difficult when technology is, is, is about instant gratification and is about trying to address our needs before we even realize we have them. So these are tensions that I think we're working out as a technological society, right. but speaks to the need to maintain that human dynamic in an era of robots. Mm -hmm. That as we embrace automation as a kind of empowerment, we still need to remember why humans are messy and slow and complicated, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Get reminders of that constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it seems, I don't know, is our, is our literacy waning? I, I mean... We see it more than ever if you look in politics or you look at uh, crisis events. I think you mentioned before about the, the, the Paris shooting is how quickly someone can put something out there and now it becomes written in stone, right? People are quoting other people off of social media as fact and it spreads like wildfire and somehow it just becomes normal. Like it becomes something that people cite and even... Even people in school or researchers will cite information because now they seem, even the President of the United States will cite information that, you know, I read it here and now everyone's talking about it, so it must be true. And, and 
are we becoming less literate? <laughs> I, I think we are. And, and it speaks to our relationship to access that we now have greater access than we ever have. Access to information, access to sources, access to audiences, access to power. That accessibility is intoxicating. And it allows us to feel as if we're smarter. It allows us to feel as if we're stronger. But I think literacy, for those who put in the effort, yes, literacy is getting stronger. I mean, we now have access to a kind of continuing education that we couldn't even have conceived of before. Literally, all the world's information at our fingertips. So, so for those who have the privilege, for those who have the means, literacy is now something that they can develop dramatically. But for most people, they stop at access. Mm -hmm. They get access to the world. They get access to this information. They go for that fast answer. They go for the quick fix. Right. And I think that is eroding literacy, both at a societal level and at an individual level. And it speaks to the difference between education and entertainment. Do we, that you could use these devices to educate yourself, or you could use these devices <laughs> to entertain yourself. And most people choose entertainment. Do we, do we need to, you know, it's time come now where we have, this built into our education system social literacy when it comes to this for kids to to understand how to use social media wisely and and as opposed to helping them navigate because we we see a lot of stuff that people mm -hmm. even young people aren't aware of things that they say at an early age can come back to haunt them and and all these things and i don't know if we do enough for kids to teach them they're tech savvy but they're not literate savvy I think education is in a bit of a crisis right now. And part of it is that teachers are not getting the support they need. They're being asked to do a whole lot more than they used to. I mean, they're expected to be technology experts. They're expected to be subject matter experts. They're expected <laughs> behavioral to be therapists. behavioral yeah. experts. Everything. Yeah. I think parents and families need to accept a certain responsibility when it comes to literacy and responsibility. But I feel that education institutions are now in the business of learning. I mean, we used to think that learning stopped at school, whereas the reality is that every professional needs to be involved in learning every day. Right. And so schools need to be teaching the joy of learning, the art of pedagogy, so that people don't see so much as school as a place to go obtain knowledge, but school as a place to obtain the methods to then go get knowledge elsewhere. So yes, that's a literacy. Mm -hmm. And yes, that's critical thinking and philosophy and ethics in terms of the old school classical education. But unfortunately, most people are equating education with employment. Mm -hmm. And they're looking towards schools as a place to prepare people for the workforce. And I'm not sure that's what schools should be doing mm -hmm. in an era where the internet can prepare people for the workforce. Mm -hmm but schools should prepare people for the internet, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the task that they're currently configured to do. Right. Just on the other side of the kind of the literacy piece, do you think that part of the reason there's so much information out there, whether you, know, you look at it, I guess the news animal is, is completely different, um, deciphering what's real and what's not, but from a healthcare perspective, and people are hungry for that information. And there are sites like WebMD and other ones that are, are found a way to monetize people's desire to have that kind of information. But as experts in healthcare, whether mental health care or acute care, we haven't provided a single source for that information. Like we haven't given them a place to go where you know, the community stands behind that as being factual and relevant information. And is that kind of a missing piece in all this? It is. And, and the irony is it doesn't need to be. 
Because on the one hand, healthcare, like all of science, is based on the concept of peer review. That you're judged by your peers, any research, any work has to go through a rigorous peer review process. And the internet also works on peer review. And some of the most powerful and profound elements of the internet are peer-to-peer, which are not only based on peer review, but are based on a kind of network structure that focuses either on transferring a file as fast as possible or validating information as fast as possible. Unfortunately, the missing link between those two is a, a, a lack of investment in structure. I mean, the internet is dominated by libertarianism as an ideology. The idea that we don't need rules on the internet, we don't need structures on the internet, we don't need regulations. But the fact is we do. Like, society's based on the rule of law. Society's based on social structure. So unfortunately, the organizations on the internet that have, intru- have introduced social structure are those with the financial incentive to do so. And usually it's a kind of editorial accountability. But there's no reason that, you know, the Ontario Medical Association or that different bodies who regulate health professionals could not also create internet bodies that regulate the information used by those professionals in concert with patients, in concert with partners and stakeholders. So there, I think, is a great potential to have peer-reviewed internet arenas, forums, websites in which people are able to participate and share research and share ideas. Unfortunately, either the people who could do that have chosen not to because they see the internet as full of trolls and not a friendly place to have that kind of respectful debate, or because they're content to stick to their offline journals and associations that have always been the source of that authority and that kind of research. And that's why politics abhors a vacuum and the types of snake oil salesmen and fear mongers and conspiracy theorists have filled the void because they have created those types of forums. They have created those types of environments. And that's why polio's coming back and the measles are coming back because these people who run afoul of science have seized the day. They've seized the space. So that's partly why then do these call to arms to scientists, to health professionals as to why they need to charge into the public discourse and share those types of arguments. But it also makes the assumption that the nature of peer-reviewed research means that what we all agree upon today may not be true in the future, right? Doctors used to smoke cigarettes (laughs) and used to think that that was perfectly a healthy practice until the research caught up and realized no. So there are probably many practices that we currently have today that in the future we will find is wrong. So I think that kind of humility is part of what it means to have peer-reviewed environments. And unfortunately, the authorities today are afraid mm-hmm. of that humility, are afraid of what it th- would mean to have those types of peer review environments, so they've been resistant. A, a big piece of what you talked about today was the participatory research, and you coined the, the phrase citizen science. Where Can you kind of describe uh, the, you know, that term and where you see participatory research going in the future? So one of the more powerful phenomena on the internet is crowdsourcing, the network effect of many hands making for a lighter load and creating social structures that are inclusive and participatory. So the scientific equivalent of this is citizen science, in which you create research experiments, you create research projects, science projects that are as inclusive as possible. 
They still adhere to science as a method, so they're led by a scientist, they're facilitated by scientists, but it assumes that the researchers participating in such a project may not be formally educated as scientists. That as long as they follow the method, as long as they follow the framework for the research experiment as a whole, they can be citizen scientists. So instead of, say, three principal investigators conducting research, you could have three principal investigators facilitating hundreds of citizen scientists who could be gathering data in their communities, who could be conducting interviews, who could be engaging in anthropological observation. I mean, it speaks both to the need for uh, cash-strapped or uh, uh, fiscally restrained organizations to still engage in large-scale research, but it also speaks to the educational process of fostering scientific literacy. Because all those participants, all those citizen scientists, they may enter the project completely ignorant of how science works, but they leave the project with a greater awareness of the value of science, of the failings or shortcomings of science, how scientists are not gods, they're just people with questions who happen to have an interesting method to address that question. So it's a way of fostering scientific literacy and in particular health literacy amongst the population by engaging them in the research, not as subjects, but as researchers. So then it both expands the capacity of that research while also expanding the types of people who will promote that research and who after the research is done will be at the front lines of promoting scientific responses to the problems that plague us mm. in a way that's much more responsible and ethical than many of the other commercial models that are out there. And you don't get any strange looks when you mention that to scientists, right? Well, I do. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing about citizen mm. science yeah. is to many scientists, they see it as blasphemy. Mm. Right, The idea that a scientist is someone who graduates from accredited institution and is regulated by their peers. And that was true in a different era. But in the era of the internet, you don't need an institution to get an education. And I've had many scientists stand up and say, oh, the notion of citizen science is abhorrent. It's disgusting. To which I respond, look, science isn't a religion. It's a method. And anyone who employs that method is a scientist. That's how it works. And if... A scientist who already has credibility is smart enough as a pedagogue, i.e. a teacher, to help other people learn the method, i.e. convert them into scientists. Well, great. What a fantastic way of not only increasing the capacity for scientific research, but increasing the political support for scientific research. Because all of a sudden you have citizens across the country believing in science and practicing science and therefore prioritizing the spending of public money on scientific research. Well, well I think we could talk about this for quite some time, <laughs> but uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. But <clears throat> for anybody who wants to learn more about Jesse, you can, like I said, check him out on Twitter at Jesse Hirsch. Uh, Google your name. You'll be speaking somewhere you'll, <laughs> or you'll find a, cl a clip of uh, you on a newscast or or uh, some some YouTube videos. So uh, no shortage of internet sightings for you. So thank you very much for, for being here today. It was great chatting, and, and good luck uh, in the future. Thank you. We know the past.